recorded live. Oh, this is William Fink, and this is my presentation of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 21, Part 1. Christogenia on Talk Show. Today is Friday, November 16th, 2012. The year's almost over. Or maybe the world's almost over if you're Eli James or any of the other people who profess the Mayan calendar theory, which is sort of harebrained. I just had to mention that. I'll be doing a program. I'll I'll be here. I don't know if it's really going to be a program, but I'll be here on December 21st, 2012 at 11 p.m. just in order to um, throw some barbs at some of those people that insist on setting end-time dates and making predictions that aren't found in, in, in the plain word of Scripture. Simply ridiculous. I had a little um, spat with somebody yesterday on Facebook that professed to believe that Noah's Ark was a spaceship and and that there were so many wacky ideas. and and, um, I don't want to call them theories because it gives them legitimacy that the idea that Noah's Ark was a spaceship comes from a a strange fellow named Noah Fredericks, who's actually loved by many people in Christian identity, just because something's different doesn't mean that we should embrace it. The, the plain word of Scripture and in and, and, and the words of Christ in the Gospel say that, um, say that Noah got on the ark here on planet Earth and, and the waters came and, and flooded the people here. They don't say that Noah got on a spaceship and brought the DNA from two of every sort of animal to this planet and all sorts of strange ideas like that. The people that embrace that stuff get really offended when you confront them. I don't, I don't understand it. it. It's not scriptural, and, and um, these people claim to be students of scripture at the same time. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We won't get through the entire chapter today. This is, there's a lot to this chapter. Luke is, in many ways, the two-seed-line gospel. It, it's, um, it, it's also the, the gospel that most clearly expresses the idea of the covenant being intended explicitly for the nations of dispersed Israel. And, and we see that in Luke chapters 1 and 2, and, and we saw that greatly. On, 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 on the um, Saturday program, I began doing a series of my work against the Paul Bashers, and, and the Paul Bashers dismiss Luke. I don't get that either. Luke is the, the gospel which most clearly expresses the, the exclusivity of the covenants. I know there's a line or two in Matthew and in John, and you could probably find something in Mark. But Luke expresses that most clearly, and, and Luke also expresses um, the idea that evil is genetic most clearly. And we find that in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 11, and um, 
evil certainly is genetic because everything that's not kind after kind is Satan, is established in opposition to God and contrary to his laws and not made by God. As Clifton likes to say, Yahweh made the mule. No, Yahweh made the horse and Yahweh made the donkey. Yahweh didn't make the mule. He created all things which he created in Genesis chapter 1. He didn't create bastards. Perhaps they were created in the error of man and within the scope of the permissive will of Yahweh who allows his children to make mistakes so that they learn. But Yahweh, don't blame your father for the creation, for, for your creation of bastards. That, that's, um, that, that's simply passing the buck and, and, and um, not accepting your sin. So the Paul bashers, and, and th this little talk goes hand in hand with my series there, to, to reject Luke and, and to reject the gospel that not only most clearly expresses um, that the idea that evil is genetic and, and, and the two seed line idea, as we like to call it, and, and it not only expresses most clearly the, the explicit um, intent of the, the covenants, the, the new covenant being for the dispersed nations of the children of Israel, as we see in Luke chapter 2, and, and at the end of Luke chapter 1, that, that the, the, the New Testament was, and the Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and the New Testament was exclusively for the children of the fathers. Those ideas are expressed most clearly in Luke, and the Paul bashers would get rid of Luke because Luke was the companion of Paul. And, and that's the danger. It, it's very, uh, it's, Paul bashing is an extremely dangerous position. I'll be here tomorrow night with segment three of that series on Paul bashing. Tonight, it's Luke chapter 21, part one. Luke 21, one. Then looking up, he saw those casting the gifts of their riches into the treasury and saw a certain needy widow casting two lepta there. Of course, last week in, in Luke chapter 22, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going backwards. In Luke chapter 20, we left Christ in his discourse in the temple warning about the scribes who wished to walk about in robes and love the greetings in the markets and the first benches and the assembly halls and the best seats and the dinner. And now he sees an elderly widow casting what essentially is two pennies in, into the treasury, or maybe two dollars in today's terms. Lepta are very small coins. The Codex says I, and I have to admit, this is a translation note that I just have to mention because it's, it, it's not only interesting, it shows us the development of manuscripts, right? The Codex Beze inserts the explanatory phrase after the word lepta, and it reads, which is a quadrant into the verse. So we see that in, in the 5th century, at least, when that Codex was created, and, and it may be a little earlier than that. Of course, most of those manuscripts have predecessors 
two lepta were considered to be equivalent to a quadrants, right? The manuscript also substituted that word kodrantes in Greek for lepton at Luke 12.59. And, and there, studying those things, we see an example of a, a liberality taking, taken in the copying of manuscripts in order to satisfy a difference in the vernacular, whether that's regional or, or the vernacular of the period. Evidently here, another copyist of the scrolls, which led to the Codex Byzantium, meant to clarify the word lepton, lepta being the plural, by adding a, a more, uh, by adding a note rather than changing the word. And this marginal note, which is a quadrans, ended up in the text in the Codex Byzantium, not in the others. That, that's just, it, it's studying the manuscripts. You can see how words were substituted because dialects were different, and, and, and how little marginal notes eventually worked their way into the text, and all that stuff has to be unwound by a translator. And it's, a lot of it's just judgment calls, and it's very difficult to do, and none of us are ever going to do it perfectly, or even probably do it, do it well. It's difficult. Verse 3. And he said, truthfully, I say to you that this poor widow has cast more than all. For all of them from their abundance have cast in the gifts. But she from her want has cast in all the substance she had. Now, now the King James Version has the gifts of God. And, and that's from the Codex Alexandrinus, the Beze the Washingtonensis, and, and the majority text. The Christogeny New Testament wants those words of God following the Codexes, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus. If a very rich man gives hundreds of dollars for a cause, and a very poor widow gives two dollars, two lepta here, may as well be two dollars, then proportionately the widow has given much more than a rich man. That's the lesson here, very simple. Her gift would be accounted for much greater in the eyes of God. Verse 5. And upon some speaking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and ornaments. And I have another translation note on that word adorned. That word is the verb cosmeo. Cosmeo, K-O-S-M-E-O -E in Greek. The word also appears in Luke 11.25 and in the Christianian New Testament where it appears, it's a verb, it's past tense. It's translated as ornamented. This word is important. It's important to understand this word to understand the meaning of the word world. Because this word is a verbal form of the noun cosmos, which is usually translated as world in the King James Version of the Bible. The word cosmos literally means order, adornment, decoration, embellishment, or, or, or fashion. And cosmeo is its verbal form. In the cases where it refers to the world, as the King James Version calls it, the cosmos is really, in the Greek mind, the adornment, the order of the oikumene. The oikumene 
is the physical Greco-Roman at this time, the physical Greco-Roman dwelling space, the Greco-Roman world, the area where the tribes of Greek and Roman and, and related peoples dwell. That's called the oikumene, which is literally a, a dwelling space, an oikos being a house or an abode or a dwelling. The cosmos is the order. It's the adornment. That's what the word means of the oikumene. And therefore, more properly in our language today, refers to the society. That's why it's translated society in most places where it appears in the Christianity New Testament. By no means did the ancient Greeks ever perceive that the word cosmos could refer to what we now know as the planet and everything on it. Even though the planet, in the wider sense, might be a part of the cosmos of the universe, the decoration, the adornment, the arrangement of the universe, it can't refer to the planet and everything on it in the sense that we use the word world. Society is a much better translation. To continue, I'll repeat verse 5 along with verse 6. And upon some speaking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and ornaments, he said, meaning Christ, these things which you behold, the day shall come in which there is left not, I'm sorry, in which there is not left here a stone upon a stone which shall not be thrown down. The Jews' wailing wall can actually be shown to date after the time when the temple is completed in the first century, actually under Herod Agrippa I, when the temple was fine, when Herod's building, when the first Herod the Great's building projects were finally completed, is esteemed to be, according to Josephus, in the time of Herod Agrippa I. The Jews' wailing wall can be shown to date after that time. All claims to its having been a part of any of the Jerusalem temples are Jewish propaganda. Those words of Christ were literally true. There was not left there a stone upon a stone which was not thrown down. The Jews' wailing wall is much more likely to be the remains of a Roman structure from the period following the destruction of Jerusalem. When a Roman fortress was built on that spot, Coins and other artifacts from the first century have been found beneath the Jewish wailing wall by archaeologists. It is clear, as can be established from the historian Josephus, that after 70 AD, every stone which comprised the Temple of Jerusalem had indeed been thrown down. I'm going to read from Josephus' Wars of the Judeans from Book 7, Lines 375, to 377. Josephus records the words of the general of the gang, it was really a gang, called the Sicarii. His name was Eleazar. And Eleazar made this, this address to those who were besieged, those Judeans, who were besieged by the Romans at Masada, 
in the fourth year of the reign of Vespasian, when Masada was taken by Rome, which was a few years after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the legions under Titus. And I quote the words of Eleazar according to Josephus, appealing to his soldiers at Masada, where he asks, And where is now that great city, the metropolis of the Judean nation, which was fortified by so many walls all around, which had so many fortresses and large towers to defend it, which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for the war, and which had so many ten thousands of men to fight for it. Where is this city that was believed to have God himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very foundations and has nothing but that monument of it preserved. And by that, he says, I mean the camp of those who destroyed it, which still dwells upon its ruins. So we see, according to Josephus, by no later than 73, maybe 72 A.D., Vespasian, I believe, came to power in 69. He came to the emperorship. It may have been 70. So no later than 73 A.D., Josephus tells us, and he was an eyewitness through the words of Eleazar at Masada, that there was nothing left of the walls of Jerusalem. The only thing that sat on it, on, on that spot, was a, an encampment built by the Romans. Verse 7. Then they questioned him, saying, Teacher, so when shall these things be? And what is the sign when these things are going to come? The version of this exchange, as it is recorded in Mark's Gospel, at Mark 13, 3 states, And upon his being seated in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they questioned him by themselves, Peter and Jacob and John and Andrew. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what is the sign when all these things would be about to be accomplished? Here, Luke's account also records only these two questions. Yet we can see from the account as it was recorded by Matthew that the apostles asked Christ three separate questions. From Matthew 24, verse 3, Then with his sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the students came forth to him by themselves, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what is the sign of your coming and of the consummation of the age? It should not be said that the Gospels of Mark and Luke conflict with that of Matthew. We should only observe that Mark's and Luke's accounts are from different perspectives, and facts were remembered differently. Note that Mark describes that only four apostles engaged in this dialogue with Christ, a fact with which Matthew and Luke both omitted altogether. That doesn't mean that others weren't present. Mark is only saying that 
they themselves did not engage in the dialogue, that only four of the apostles engaged in the dialogue. Whenever various people witness an event, and this is important to understand when comparing all of the Gospels, because they're often scoffed at by the Jews, because they're often criticized at the Jews, by the Jews because they don't match perfectly. If they all matched perfectly, the enemies of Christ would say, oh, one guy copied from another. In fact, they make that claim too, well, which is a lie. Even though Luke may have used some of the same witnesses that Mark did, or, or fragments of what, Mark or, or, or Matthew had used as witnesses. Whenever various people witness an event, one person remembers perhaps three parts of an event, for example, out of perhaps three or four or five or more stages in the completion of the event. And another person either remembers or feels it only matters enough to record maybe two of the three parts or maybe three parts of a four-part event where one of those parts is not recorded by the first person who related the event. That's not a discrepancy. That's not a conflict. Rather, it's human. And it happens all the time when various people recollect the same event. Try it out one day. We may have parts of an event that we can label A, B, C, D, E, and perhaps one person who witnesses it recalls and records parts A and C and D, while a second person records parts B and D and E. Both accounts are true, yet neither account is complete by itself. That is the nature of the Gospels. That's the nature of, say, the Sermon on the Mount. But when you compare Matthew's version with Luke's, it's the same sermon that the, the, the history surrounding the, the sermons as they're presented in the gospel shows that they're both recording the same sermon, but the accounts are, are in many places quite different. That doesn't mean that one of them's wrong. It just means that one writer reported different parts of the words of Christ because they stood out in his mind. He thought they were more important for whatever reason than the other writer had. It's the same thing here. The question, tell us, when shall these things be? Was in reference to the statements of Christ just made concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, which he had just forewarned that at the temple there would not be one stone left upon another. The question, what is the sign of your coming? Was in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ. And the additional question, not recorded by either Mark or Luke, but by Matthew, was, and of the consummation of the age, which is really just a continuation of the second question, but it is a third and distinct item that's being asked. And that's in reference to Christ's many statements, which mention the end of the age, or the end of the world, as the King James Version has it, such as at Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Christ says, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in fire, thus we it shall be at the consummation of the age. 
Mark received his gospel from Peter, according to all ancient accounts, and the circumstantial evidence in the New Testament supports that. Luke, as he tells us, as he, as he himself attests in the opening verses of his gospel, Luke received his gospel from other anonymous eyewitnesses. Anonymous simply, not, not that we don't know all of who they are. We can tell some of who they are. But they're anonymous because they're not named, right? He received his gospel from other anonymous eyewitnesses and, and the plurality of them. It may well be that neither of their witnesses, meaning Peter and, and whoever Luke's witnesses were for this event, understood the full impact of the question, the third question, nor felt it important enough to record it all. However, Matthew did record it all. It may also be perceived that the meaning of the final two questions concerning the sign of his coming and of the consummation of the age may have been considered one and the same in the eyes of the other witnesses. And therefore, only Matthew took care to record it fully. The apostles could not have known that the answers to these three questions would describe separate events, which would occur many years apart from each other. They imagined the destruction of Jerusalem to mark the end of the age and the return of the Christ. Christian preterists hold that same errant conclusion today. And in fact, in a different way, so do many futurists who esteem the contemporary sewer, and I'll call it a sewer, that's being nice to it, in Palestine to be the Jerusalem of prophecy, when in fact, Jeremiah told us that the old city Jerusalem would be broken and forever destroyed as a broken bottle, which could not be put back together in Jeremiah chapter 19. Christ did not clarify the matter for us. He did not divide up his answers to these three questions so that they may correspond to the different questions which were asked. Rather, Christ gave one long discourse and a single answer to all three questions. It is a challenge for us to sort it out. And it must be said that none of us are going to be able to do so with absolute clarity. It, it just can't be assured. Luke 21, verse 8. And he said, watch that you are not deceived. For many shall come by my name saying, I am. That's a literal translation of what Luke has. And the time has come near. You should not go after them. I'll read um, Matthew 24, 4, because Matthew's answer is more precise the way he recorded it. Or, or yes, Matthew's, Yahshua's answer recorded by Matthew is more precise the way Matthew recorded it. And replying, Yahshua said to them, watch lest anyone should deceive you. For many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall deceive many. Likewise, Mark 13, 5. Then Yahshua began to speak to them. 
Watch that not anyone would deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying that I am he, and they shall deceive many. In the first few centuries of Christianity, from what we know from the records, or from what I can tell from the records which I have read, which are quite numerous, many men were preaching a false Christ, meaning that they were attributing teachings to Yahshua Christ and to his apostles, which he did not actually intend for us. But it is not evident in any of the records which we have that they were actually claiming to be the Christ. There's a huge difference. Now, I know there's a story about Apollonius of Tiana. Apollonius of Tiana was most likely only a a neo-Pythagorean philosopher. Pythagoras had, had actually, and this can be told from the records, Pythagoras's Pythagoras's writings don't exist, but we have a lot of quotes and, and ideas attributed to Pythagoras in the works of other writers. Pythagoras very evidently attained a lot of his philosophy from the Hebrew Old Testament. He was a Greek. And, and and a lot of Greeks, and, and there, there are um, many works on, on Christagenia.org which demonstrate this. There's a book written in the 1800s. I forget the title off the top of my head. And, and there's some of my own research presented at Christagenia, which, which demonstrate well, which demonstrate that the, um, the Greek culture, the ancient Greek culture, is clearly based upon the Hebrew culture. That, that a lot of the ideas are, are absolutely cognate with the Hebrew Old Testament because the Greeks, of course, were dispersed Israelites. At least the Dan and the Dorian Greeks were dispersed Israelites. That could be proven. Well, Apollonius of Tiana was probably only a Neo-Pythagorean philosopher, but much of what is related about him comes from a biographical novelist named Philostratus who lived a century later than Apollonius, and also from the emendations of fanciful writers of tales from the 4th century and later. So I wouldn't count Apollonius as one who claimed to be the Christ. The, the, the records of him are heavily embellished and not consistent. There were also several minor would-be Messiah figures in Jerusalem around the time of Christ, such as Judas the Golanite, who was described by Josephus and who was really just a tax protester. None of these characters fit the circumstances which Joshua Christ relates here, that many would come in his name. Joshua specifically tells us that many would come claiming to be him, And that has not happened in the ancient world. It hasn't happened until this present era. In the present era, over the last two centuries, there have been many figures specifically claiming to be the Christ. 
meaning to be an advent or a reincarnation of Jesus Christ, as they like to call him. Among these are the Korean named Sung Myung Moon, another Korean named An Sang Hong, a circus clown named Marshall Applewhite, another one named Jim Jones, another one that called himself Baha Lula. I'm probably butchering that, but it deserves to be butchered. And a host of several dozens of other assorted freaks. This Sung Young Moon recently announced himself, and recently, I mean probably about 12 or 14 years ago, he announced himself to be the third messiah. He coronated himself at ceremonies. This isn't to be taken lightly. The ceremonies were attended by congressmen and by other corporate dignities and, and, and government dignities. He claimed for himself to be the sinless savior of the world and said that he would conquer and subjugate the world, this oriental beast, yellow squat monster. And he had all of his news published in his own newspaper, the Washington Times. But it was much worse than that. Governments around the world, including the United Nations and the United States government, participate in programs connected to the so-called Unification Church, which Moon founded. Well, now, fortunately, Moon is dead, but that doesn't retract his claims to being the Christ, his claims to being the Messiah, and, and, and the, the recognition of this circus clown by so many world governments and, and state leaders. and his influence on government and business while making those claims. That's pretty serious, right? That, that's outright blasphemy. And governments and big business kissed his ass. He must have had some Jews behind him somewhere along the line, I'm sure. Now he is dead, and he's forgotten by most people outside of his own cult, However, that cult controls a global business empire which Moon and those who assisted him had developed under the guise of Moon's religious claims and, and his, well, well, if you want to call it a religion, I guess it is. He is just one example of such a false Christ, but he's a rather illustrious one. These other men also claim to be Christ. They claim to be messiahs and made specific claims in regard to that. Now, if this prophecy which Christ makes can only seem to have been realized in more recent times because there is no such attestation in ancient history of any such things having happened in the early centuries of Christianity, then the entire discourse here given by Christ must also be applicable to these more recent times as well as what obviously applies to the past and to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In other words, Christ's answer to all three questions posed by the apostles must be in and throughout this discourse and all wound together. And, well, we have to consider which parts of this discourse 
apply in 70 AD and not discount their application in our future, the possibility that they are dual prophecies which shall be fulfilled again because this prophecy of false Christs is only applicable to this current time, meaning the last two centuries. Many commentators seek to contain the words of Christ here to the period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And while in the providence of God, it is evident that his warnings, especially concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, would certainly be interpreted that way, and they were, the verses which both preceded and which follow The specific verse here, verses 10 and 11, show that it cannot have been intended to be limited to that period because it is clearly describing, the entire discourse is clearly describing something much greater than the events of 70 AD. Reading verse 10 and 11 I haven't read too many of the commentaries, but all of the ones I've read try to contain this to 70 AD, and it can't be. Then he said to them, Nation shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be both great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. There shall be both terrors and great signs from heaven. These words describe something far beyond the uprising against Rome and Judea, which culminated into a war roughly 32 years after Christ had spoken. 65 AD. That something did not occur in the first century AD. What these words are describing did not occur in the first century AD, although Christ certainly foresaw that they would be interpreted in that way. The first century was actually a time of relative peace throughout the Roman Empire. Not total peace, relative peace. The first century is part of that period labeled by contemporary historians as the Pax Romana, or sometimes it's called the Pax Augusta, after Caesar Augustus, which is when the period is esteemed to have begun. Generally, it is said to have endured from 27 BC until 180 AD. It was a very peaceful time for the empire. Except for the Judean uprising, 65 to 70 AD, a couple of failed incursions into territory held by the Germanic tribes, the loss of Varus, by Varus, the general of two legions, and Augustus lamented them. That happened about 9 AD, maybe 6, I think 9. The border skirmishes with the Parthians and the expansion of the empire into a few areas such as Britain and Pannonia and Dacia, which are all relatively minor areas compared to the holdings of the empire. Except for a couple of contentions for the imperial office, especially the the year of three emperors, 
67 AD, following the the the, um, the death of Nero. Except for those things, the empire was in a state of relative rest throughout the entire century. It could hardly be described as a period in which nation arose against nation and kingdom against kingdom, accompanied by famine and earthquakes and plagues. The statement concerning terrors and great signs from heaven may be taken literally or figuratively. However, it does not seem to have happened in the first century, and it is impossible to quantify until it happens, right? We can't tell how it's going to occur if it hasn't occurred. One must strive to find notable events of the first century AD, which these statements could have been intended to describe. Therefore, they must transcend that period, and they must be describing something much greater. In Matthew chapter 24, after the words of Christ recorded here, Matthew also records the statement given at Matthew 24, 8, which says, and, and Luke doesn't include it in his record, it says, and all these things are the beginning of travails. My point is that if the words which preceded this concerning false Christs, false messiahs claiming to be Christ, are only applicable to this current period. And if these words are not really applicable to the first century, they certainly are applicable to this current period, and we shall see. But before all of these things, they shall lay their hands upon you and persecute you, being handed over to the assembly halls and prisons, being led before kings and governors because of my name. Once one realizes what is being forewarned here, one must realize that the prescience of Christ is astounding in an age where there were a myriad of philosophies and their proponents. I'm talking about the first century. Some of these philosophies had been established for centuries. I'm talking about the pagan religions and, and the philo philosophical sects among the Greeks, such as the Stoics and the Gnostics and, and, and the Epicureans, the Aristotelians, followers of Aristotle. Some of these philosophies have been established for centuries and had perhaps hundreds of thousands of adherents. Countless other philosophies among the Greeks were obscure and short-lived. From a worldly perspective, what chance would an upstart creed, which apparently, to the Greco-Roman to the ignorant Greco-Roman world, apparently would be just an offshoot of what they call Judaism, right? What chance would an upstart creed have of success in the face of so many obstacles and so many long-entrenched and popular philosophies? 
Understanding the pressure Understanding the prescience of Christ alone in this matter leads one to the inevitable conclusion that Christianity is the world's only true religion. Christ, Christ did not merely hope for the spread of his gospel into the wider world. He knew it would spread. He knew it would be met with harsh opposition. He knew what the result would be for those who followed, even though he did not teach direct rebellion from worldly authorities and let no man tell you he did. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's so that you can give to God what is God's. He taught just the opposite of direct rebellion from the worldly authorities. Why would Christianity be persecuted if it didn't rebel from Rome? He wasn't a tax protester. Christ knew that his creed would spread throughout the Roman world. He knew that his followers would be despised and persecuted unto death. And that they would be brought before the highest councils where they would attest to him and his word. He knew it all. He spoke of it here long in advance of its happening. It could be proven that copies, fragments of these Gospels date long before these events occurred. And indeed, it happened just as he had indicated. That is why. As he is recorded as having said in verse 13, it shall result in a testimony for you. In other words, the fulfillment of his words concerning the spread of his creed and the persecution of his followers. That alone is proof to us that his words were true. The first Roman persecutions of Christians occurred under Claudius and then later under Nero. Those persecutions were instigated by Jews. And even Claudius had, had um, early on actually included the Jews in some of his sanctions. He tossed them all out of Rome, right? The, the unbelieving adversarial Judeans. While these alone are sufficient to fulfill Christ's words, the persecution of Christians continued for several centuries until... Christianity was finally given official recognition as a legitimate creed in the 4th century A.D. by Constantine, right? However, it was then beginning to be distorted, and that's another topic which is far beyond the scope of this discussion. My point is to show that the persecutions, and, and the bulk of the persecutions predicted, prophesied by Christ, Extend, be, extended beyond 70 AD. 
and and my point with that is to show that the preterists who claimed that all prophecy would be fulfilled in 70 AD, that's what they believe, and, and V.S. Herald, V.S. Herald, the Christian separatist preterist, is an example of that, right? All prophecy is fulfilled by 70 AD. That's kind of silly. The spread of Christianity throughout the Greco-Roman world, under penalty of death for its professors, and in spite of the popularity of the prevalent pagan and sophistic cults, along with the realization that Christ forebode all of these things in detail far in advance, these things, that these things happened, result in a testimony to you, as he told his followers. These things prove that he is God, that all of the assertions of his gospel message are certainly true, as the words of Christ say here. By them we know that he is true. We saw in the statements concerning false Christs that such a prophecy was not fulfilled until relatively recent times, and not at all in the first century. And while the subsequent statements may in some ways fit the unfolding of events leading up to the destruction of the old Jerusalem, and they do, in many ways they do not, and we must look to another manner of their fulfillment. Since Christ is answering three questions at once here, and those questions have to do not only with the destruction of the temple buildings of the old city, but also of the time of his coming, and the time of the culmination of the age. The coming of men, falsely claiming for themselves to be Christ, is seen in history only in the past 200 years. While we have always had war with us in some degree, over the past 200 years, we have never had so much war as we have had in these two centuries and such destructive wars. Since the emancipation of the Jew in Europe in the time of Napoleon, we have been in a state of continual war and revolution. And while it seems remote to us now, only 70 years ago, 63 million people died in World War II alone. Most of them white Christians. Where practically every single nation on earth was involved. Wars and rumors of war. And Christ says, but not yet is the end. And while we have not had a lot of famine in white Adamic lands lately, we saw 20 million, at least, Ukrainian and Russian Christians, for the most part, die from famine during the Stalin regime. 
and on a much smaller scale, many died from starvation during the Dust Bowl and Depression era here in North America. Many Europeans died due to famine and disease in post-war Europe, especially Germans. It was a famine organized by certain elements in France which enticed the common people into supporting the famous revolution, the French Revolution, which initiated the modern era. And we cannot really say that any of this won't happen again. When and if it does, we glorify God because his word is true. We can see the fulfillment of the words of Christ in ancient times, but we can see them unfolding again before our very eyes. The prophetic Jerusalem is not in Palestine. The prophetic Jerusalem is the seat of government of the main body of the people of God, wherever in the world they happen to be. The true people of God are not Jews. They are white Christians. The children of the nations of Israel, according to the flesh, as Paul relates in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and again in Galatians chapter 4. And as ancient history proves, which is why Paul took the gospel to Europe in the first place. Verse 14. Therefore, you set it in your hearts not to practice speaking in defense beforehand. For I shall give you a mouth and wisdom which all those opposing you shall not be able to withstand or contradict. Many people today use these words as an excuse not to study the scripture. I've actually heard that. I've heard it several times. Oh, I don't need to read the Bible. The Holy Spirit will tell me what to say. If that were true, then why did Paul of Tarsus, who was in his later years a victim of these very persecutions prophesied by Christ, why did Paul at the same time write to Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that need not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth why did Paul esteem the Metaberia to be more notable than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Acts 17.11 Why did Paul ask Timothy to bring him books and parchments from the Troad as Timothy was on his way to see Paul in Rome? 2 Timothy 4.13 Luke wrote his gospel so that, and I quote Luke 1.4, Thou might know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Christ says in the Revelation, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22, 7. 
the closing of the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. And many other signs. Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So we see that books, scriptures, parchments, they're necessary, right? That's the point. Christ expected all of those hearing him to be readers of scripture, and so did Paul. Without a study of scripture, one is ignorant and susceptible to to the devices of men. The Spirit teaches us all things by guiding us in our study of Scripture. There are no excuses. If one studies Scripture, he could build his foundation on the bedrock. If not, his foundation stands on ever-shifting sand. The mouth and wisdom to speak, which are inspired by the Spirit of God, draw upon our study of Scripture for their raw material. Sure, we don't have to study what we're going to say beforehand to those who would accuse us or to those who would inquire of us. We don't have to study if we've already studied. If we already know our Scripture, then the Spirit will guide us. But you have to know the scripture first. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. Verse 16. But you shall be handed over, even by parents and brethren and kinsmen and friends, and they shall kill some of you. The accounts of these words, as recorded by both Matthew and Mark, also tell us that the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom would occur in all nations at this time, which is just before the time of the end. Here it is from Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, things that Luke didn't record. And this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole inhabited earth for testimony to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And Mark 13.10, likewise, from the same account, from a corresponding account to this one here in Luke. And in all nations, it is first necessary for the good message to be proclaimed. It must be noted that Mark's version of Yahshua's discourse connects the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom directly to the testimony of persecuted Christians, where Matthew's version... From Matthew's version, one may be led to believe that the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom would follow those persecutions. Luke's version of the discourse, which we have here, does not mention the gospel of the kingdom. While Matthew and Mark seem to have recorded these things in respect to the culmination of the age, Such an interpretation is not immediately evident in Luke, except with the understanding that the prophecy of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies has a dual fulfillment. 
one concerning what had happened to the ancient city in 70 AD, and another, another of the time of the end, and speaking of prophetic Jerusalem. These things, as Luke records them, were literally fulfilled in the persecutions of Christians during the days of the Roman Empire, when it was actually criminal to be a Christian. Today, while Christianity itself is not criminalized, we see, we witness the de facto criminalization of many Christian precepts which Christians everywhere should be adhering to, but which the so-called churches have abandoned since those churches are, in effect, controlled by the government, and which most so-called Christians are now oblivious to. Examples of Christian precepts, which are now outlawed in our modern governments, are the Christian's obligation to separate himself from the sexually immoral, which we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And to prefer those of one's own race and profession over others, which we see Paul advise to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Those of us who follow these precepts to prefer people of our own kind and profession, our fellow Christians, our fellow Christian kinsmen, and to exclude sexual deviance and the sexually immoral from our company, homosexuals, lesbians. Those things could get us in trouble today. Those, that, that Christian behavior that sound Christian behavior is outlawed today. Expressions of one's own Christian profession are also now being outlawed at many venues, especially in December. If you want to consider Christmas Christian, I mean, most people do, right? So it's the perception that matters more than the fact. To the general population. Don't misquote me on that. Expressions of one's own Christian profession are also now being outlawed in many venues. If the eternal enemies of God and Christ the Jews, who once again have come to be the princes of this world, if they have their way, then Christianity itself shall be outlawed anew. However, for the time being, and and this is fully evident in society today, for the time being, the corrupted Jewish perversion of Christianity, which is currently being promoted by the Roman Catholics, and by all of the mainstream Protestant sects, is much more useful to the children of Satan than the actual preclusion of Christianity would ever be. They actually have the mainstream Jewish sects convinced that they should worship the Jews. And they do. They all do. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records the following. 
chapter 24, verse 11 and 12, which Luke does not record. And many false prophets shall arise, and they shall deceive many. And for reason that lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many shall grow cold. And those words of Christ, as recorded by Matthew, are fully evident today in our society. Verse 17. And you shall be hated by all on account of my name. I'll read one of my favorite verses here. Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate from you and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in accordance with these same things did their fathers to the prophets. If you are a true Christian, you should not love the world, nor should you expect the world to love you. If you have those expectations, then you're not a Christian. You're actually a traitor to Christ. Christians that profess the truth are hated by the world. And the evidence of that is certainly with us today. Yet a hair from your heads shall by no means be lost. In your endurance must you gain your lives. This last verse, Luke 21, 19, does not, as it appears on the surface, it does not teach salvation by the merit of men. Rather, and I'll quote the Christianian New Testament because the King James is just wrong on this one. Rather, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, we read that if one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. This verse teaches predestination, not salvation by the merits of men. The sovereignty of Yahweh God must be recognized by all Christians. Our fates are predetermined. They have to be, because God is God. God knowing in advance, and we do have free will, but it could be considered an illusion. It's really not, but it could be. God knowing in advance what path the choices which each of us are destined to make are going to lead us down. Whether we like it or not, those choices ultimately submit to and effect, not affect, effect. There's a difference. Those choices ultimately submit to and effect his will. Therefore, Paul tells us at Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And likewise, Peter, 
in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. And on their part, evil is spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. We are each destined to undergo certain trials. Look at Esau. Yahweh knew Esau would be a race mixer right from the, right from the womb before he was born. Was that Esau's fault? No. Esau was born and grew up. Did Esau grow up knowing he'd be a race mixer? Somehow, I don't think so. But when he came to adulthood, he was a race mixer. When Esau chose to marry Hittite women, can Yahweh God be blamed for that? No. Anyone who blames God for that fails the test of Job. Job was considered righteous because he never put the blame on God for his trials, and he never, contrary to the advice of his friends, he never claimed to be righteous and undeserving of those trials. Esau couldn't blame Yahweh because of his race mixing, Esau freely chose to marry those Canaanite women. Yahweh, being God, couldn't help but know the choices that Esau was going to make before he was born. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. In your endurance, you must gain your lives. We're designated to undergo certain trials. God knows we're going to undergo those trials. If we're designated to undergo them, well, he who is to die by the sword shall die by the sword. He is he who is to go into captivity, into captivity he goes. We can't stop our fate. Our free will choices ultimately lead us into the will of God, no matter what we do. Look at Jonah. We, even if we can't control our choices, we agree to them when we make them. When Esau married Canaanite women, he didn't do it because God twisted his arm. He agreed to that sin when he did it, when he performed it. That's the way it is. So there are certain people who are destined to undergo persecution as Christians. And enduring that, they did gain their lives. We all do. We are each destined to undergo certain trials. And after that, we shall have our lives, the lives that count, which are those which we shall have upon either departing from this world or upon the culmination of the age, depending upon the time 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explains that. If indeed, of course, we are the children of Yahweh, born from above in the first place, if we're not, well, it doesn't matter. Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her. Here we have a sharp departure from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, where those first two Gospels in this place record the words of Christ speaking of the abomination of desolation. I speak of Matthew 24, 15 and Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Luke omits that from his record. Instead, Luke records the words of Christ speaking of the desolation of Jerusalem. It is very likely that Christ said all of these things in his discourse and that while Matthew and Mark recorded the one part, Luke recorded another. The words of Christ, as recorded by Matthew and Mark, shall not be discussed here, since they are beyond the scope of what is recorded by Luke. We'll concentrate on Luke here. And the abomination of desolation is a deep topic, which was discussed at length here on this program last year, twice, both where the Gospels of Matthew and Mark were exposited at length. It shall suffice to say that the reference to the abomination of desolation is also found in Daniel chapters 11 and 12, where the prophet mentions the abomination that maketh desolate. Here in Luke, speaking of the desolation of Jerusalem, which is what Luke's record concentrates on. We can reference the prophecy of Daniel at chapter 9, where we see the promise of the destruction of Jerusalem after the cutting off of the Messiah. And I will read that portion of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. Understanding these words right here are pretty important. And to make an end of sins. Of course, sin didn't end. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Much can be said here in relation to this verse, in relation to Israel under the law. The end of judgment under the law is a matter of prophecy here in this verse, as Paul also professes. That's a side note which I felt necessary to make. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, shall be seven weeks, 
and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And I have to make another side note. This chronology was given here in exacting detail last year when Mark chapter 13 was presented in two parts on this very program. Verse 26, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, these are the Romans, the people of Messiah the prince, the King James Version translators decided not to capitalize the word prince here, and they should have. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27. And he, meaning Messiah the prince, he's still the subject, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, meaning following the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Christ, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, meaning Jerusalem, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. The desolate in that instance are the Edomite Jews who comprised most of the people left at Jerusalem. And the city was made desolate, as Christ professed in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her. Here one may wonder, how anyone may safely flee a city which is encompassed with armies. Typically, fleeing a besieged city, one is at the mercy of the assaulting army and must surrender to them. Yet, comparing the prophecy as recorded by Luke to the history of Jerusalem, later recorded by Josephus, we see the events unfold exactly as they are foretold. This prophecy fulfilled, which was not recorded in this manner in the other Gospels, proves to the rational mind that the Gospel of Luke was truly, truly inspired by Yahweh God. The Paul bashers must take note of this. 
as it is recorded by Josephus in his Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapters 18 and 19. Four years before the final siege of Jerusalem by Titus, the Roman legate of Syria, Cestius Gallus, it was probably pronounced Cestius Gallus, assembled an army in 66 AD to put down the seditions which were occurring in Galilee and in Judea. The city of Jerusalem was besieged by Cestius, who nearly taking the city, stopped and withdrew for no apparent reason. I'm going to quote from Josephus. Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, lines 538 through 540. And now it was that a horrible fear seized upon the seditious, meaning the people in Jerusalem. This is part of a, of a much longer account, right? Insomuch that many of them ran out of the city as though it were to be taken immediately. But the people, meaning the people left in the city, upon this took courage. And where the wicked part of the city gave ground, there did they come in order to open the gates and to admit Cestius as their benefactor. Part of the people in the city were good and wanted to submit to the Romans without raising the sedition or continuing it. Who, meaning Cestius, who had he but continued the siege a little longer would have certainly taken the city. But it was, I suppose, Josephus supposes, owing to the aversion God had already at the city and the sanctuary that he was hindered from putting an end to the war that very day. And what Josephus is saying here is that a prolonged war would punish the wicked city more severely because God was already angry at it. Josephus understood that. Josephus understood that what was going on in Jerusalem was a judgment from God. And I continue the quote. It then happened that Cestius was not conscious either how the besieged despaired of success nor how courageous the people were for him, meaning that there were a good faction of people in the city who wanted Testius to prevail. And so he recalled his soldiers from the place. And by despairing of any expectation of taking it, without having received any disgrace, he retired from the city without any reason in the world. Josephus is telling us that Cestius was, had the city under siege and was awfully close to taking it and gave up and left for no reason. He just left. Even though a lot of people in the city wanted to turn the city over to Cestius, wanted the Romans to take it. And Josephus attributes all that to the 
aversion to discuss the hatred which God had at the city and the sanctuary. Josephus understands that God is judging the city, and Josephus infers that a prolonged war would make that judgment more harsh. After this first siege by Castius, as Josephus records, the city, which was populated with many wicked people, the better and most eminent cities, I'm sorry, the better and most eminent citizens swam away from the city, and these are the words of Josephus, swam away from the city as if from a ship when it was going to sink. Surely, I would infer, many of those people may have been heeding the prophetic warnings of Christ given here. Warnings which only Christians should have, that when they saw Jerusalem encompassed with armies, it was time to flee. The only occasion they had to flee freely is if Jerusalem was encompassed with armies and suddenly those armies were gone. The only way that those armies were gone was that Cestius withdrew for no apparent reason, in the words of Josephus. And he did. So this, these words of Christ, the way Luke recorded them, were, per, were fulfilled perfectly and in a, in a rather unexpected and amazing way, which is the pattern set for us in the Old Testament, right? Verse 22, because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathen should be fulfilled. And yes, heathens may be translated nations there. The vengeance and captivity foretold here was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. The Romans being the people of Messiah, the prince of Daniel 9.26. The Romans being the kinsmen avengers to Christ. Paul alludes to this in his epistle to the Romans at chapter 16, verse 20, where he tells the Romans that God was about to bruise Satan under their feet. This destruction is recorded fully only by Josephus in his wars of the Judeans. But it is also mentioned in many Roman records, such as those of the Roman chronicler Tacitus, 
The mistake that mainstream Christians make is fatal here. This captivity is not the diaspora. This captivity is not the dispersion of the Old Testament Israelites by any means. That took place between 721 and 585 B.C. The Jews based their false claims of persecution under the name of Israel on this captivity as if it were the diaspora of Old Testament Israel. And they get that over in the public arena all the time. They get away with that all the time in public simply because Christians don't read their Bibles. This captivity, by which tens of thousands of non-believing, non-Christian Judeans were distributed as slaves throughout the empire, and hundreds of thousands were killed. Josephus actually states 1.1 million were killed. Although many Judeans still remained to revolt from the Romans again 60 years later, so not all of Judea was devoid of Judeans, I'll call them that for now. This captivity is the captivity of the bad fig Canaanite and Edomite Judeans, the enemies of Christ, who have been called today and ever since Jews. And they were, this captivity was also foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. And I will read from Jeremiah chapter 24. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh. After that, in the book of Drezar, king of Babylon had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. Daniel was among that first group. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs of the first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. They cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Christian Judeans. Before finishing the chapter, it must be noted, as we shall observe in these verses which follow, the king Zedekiah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem, who are the subjects for the rest of Jeremiah chapter 24, that they were not the bad figs. Certain clowns, try to make that assertion 
The text says that they were first to be handed over to the bad figs, and then they were to be punished. We read that from verse 8. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely, thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and then that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. And I am going to end this segment of Luke right here. And we can think about that until I continue at this point next week with the discussion of the good and the bad fakes. And basically, how the language in Jeremiah and the language in Luke prove that these people taken into captivity after 70 AD are the eternal enemies of Yahweh. They are the eternal infiltrators of the people of Yahweh. And that will be established here next week with Luke chapter 21, part 2. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren with my series Against the Paul Bashers, part three. Thank you and good night.